0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. It's all there in Latter-day lore. It's a new book out from University of Utah Press. The Three Nephites, The Beehive, Creative Date Invitations, BYU co-ed jokes, folklore of Mormon missionaries, the apocalypse, and much more. Latter day Lore, Mormon Folklore Studies explores society, symbols, and landscape, original culture, formative customs and traditions, the sacred and supernatural, pioneers, heroes, and historical imagination, humor, and the international context of Mormon folklore. We're going to be talking this hour with the editors. Eric Eliasson is a professor of English at Brigham Young University's chaplain for the 1st Battalion, 19th Special Forces of Utah National Guard, and author of The J. Golden Kimball Stories and Mormons and Mormonism An Introduction to an American World Religion. Eric Eliasson joins us uh, by phone. Welcome to the program. Happy to be here. And we're also joined by Tom Mold, who's an associate professor of anthropology and director of PERCS, the program for ethnographic research and community studies at Elon University. He's author of Choctaw Tales, Choctaw Prophecy, a Legacy of the Future, and Still, the Small Voice, Narrative, Personal Revelation, and Mormon Folk Tradition. And uh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Tell us where Elon University is. I hadn't heard of the university.
1: Uh, no worries. We're, uh, we're making our way onto the national map, uh, slowly but surely. We are in North Carolina, right about in the center of the state, in between Greensboro and Chapel Hill.
0: All right. Uh, liberal Arts
1: yeah, College. small liberal arts university, about five thousand students. Um, it's a law school and business school and education school, but focused on the liberal arts.
0: Let me start. Uh, perhaps uh, start with uh, Professor Lassen. Um, you start the book, the, the two of you, uh, in a very interesting way. You talk about uh, you know that the various peoples have their origin myths and. Uh, and you talk about the origin myth of Mormon folklore studies, and you center on the three Nephites. Why why did you pick the three Nephites?
2: Well, that was uh, Tom's idea, I must say, and I thought it was a a great one. And uh, we wanted to set off from the beginning of our book that we were looking at the scholarship about uh, Mormon folklore, and it seemed that the three Nephites really... From the very beginning, were the things that uh, uh, people who were folklorists were most interested about uh, Mormon folklore.
0: And so, uh, Professor uh, Mold, uh, tell you know for those who don't know the, the story of the three Nephites, what uh, what are we talking about?
1: So the three Nephites um, are figures from the Bible who were given the opportunity um, to either ascend directly up into heaven. Um, or to stay on earth and continue the good works um, on earth. And they chose to stay. And so the idea behind the narratives of the three Nephites that Eric and I and, and virtually every other folklorist who has studied um, Mormon folklore has looked at is how these stories about contemporary encounters with the three Nephites get shared um, Who's telling them, why they're telling them, uh, and why, most importantly, are people seeing the three Nephites today, whether to warn them of impending danger or give them some sort of a glimpse into the future. Um, They show up again and again and again in the stories uh, shared by Mormon Uh, people. Of all ages and you know there's any sort of dire warnings that um, that the, the three Nephite stories would sort of disappear uh, but they haven't they continue to be shared and so it continues to be a vibrant area for our study
0: So this is from the Book of Mormon these are uh, the th- three disciples of Christ who who are, are still out there still living uh, so Professor Elias what um, do we still have three Nephite sightings is, is this still vibrant in Mormon culture today
2: Oh, we cert- certainly do, and uh, we're starting to see them in other places in the world as well as the Church grows uh, internationally. Uh, one of the things that we see, though, is that they, some of the same, same themes will will update themselves, and uh, uh, Bert Wilson, a folklorist, um, uh, probably the most prominent folklorist and, of our age and who studies Mormon folklore, uh, did an interesting article a few years ago where he showed uh, how the three Nephite stories that were common in the in the 30s, where a wandering stranger would appear at somebody's house and and uh, ask for a meal, uh, would uh, would be invited in and then bless the family and then walk off into the into the snow and their footprints would disappear. Uh, a, a ways off into the snow, how that same story with its same uh, motifs and elements showed up in a modern context with um, uh, people who ran uh, ice cream stands or, or restaurants and things like that. Cause we don't really invite wandering strangers into our houses anymore, like we did in the in the 30s. But but uh, the, the the stories continue, updated to modern context.
0: Uh, Professor Mold. Uh, d- anytime you talk about folklore at least with people who come to it with only a vague knowledge there's a concern about is this true or not <laughs> right and, and I know folklorists um, y- you know that's <laughs> uh, it's it's not the central question but um, but, but it, this does reflect concerns that people have doesn't it uh, the, the story like the three five stories
1: it does um, and you know as you sort of point out folklorists you um, labor under the kind of widespread belief that folklore equals false. And uh, certainly that's not the approach we take. Um, but as you say, uh, we are not concerned with sort of historical truth in the same way that historians would be. Um, far more so when we look at a story, let's say, of the three Nephites, most of us in our orientation, we're, we're not there to question the sanity or, or um, you know veracity of a person or a story, but rather, why is this person having this experience? Why is this person sharing this story? That is so much more compelling for a folklorist, but I think more broadly than that, um, in terms of what we can understand about how people view the world, how they view themselves, what their fears and desires and concerns are in the world. So, you're exactly right. At the end of the day, a folklorist isn't going to declare, this happened, there is a supernatural being that, in, that John at the ice cream stand saw, um, but rather, why does John believe that the f- person he saw was supernatural? How does that fit within his view of his religion, of how he practices his religion, and of how he engages with the people around him? Those are the central questions. Uh, that folklorists ask. And I think, you know, I don't, don't want to confine the validity of those questions just to folklorists. I think those are interesting questions for people in any of the humanities and the social sciences more broadly.
0: We're talking with um, <clears throat> Tom Mould, who is uh, associate professor at Elon University and Eric Lyson, professor at Brigham Young University. They're editors of uh, a new collection of uh, papers. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting book, a very complete book on Latter-day lore, that's the title, subtitled Mormon Folklore Studies, new out from University of Utah Press. And you're welcome to join this conversation if you would like with your story at 1-800-826-1495 or you can join us by email to upraccess at gmail.com or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page where John Williams, April Ashland, um, Candy Olson, Joseph Anderson, and uh, Kathy Jones have liked our uh, our post. Uh so uh, professor lesson uh, there are a couple of ways you can approach this and you have approached this in this book um, people inside the culture can define themselves or attempt to define themselves through folklore uh or people outside. And um, I wonder if you could maybe take a a, a specific uh you know, strain of a specific story, and uh, tell us a bit about uh, one or the other of those definition from inside or outside.
2: Well, th- that's a great question, and, and sometimes it gets it's blurry and fuzzy, and you can't can't tell. I mean, uh, there's an example of the the idea of the belief that Mormons um, have horns is a is a old belief that's been around for a long time, and I'm not a hundred percent sure if that is a real belief that uh, Gentiles back in the day had that Mormons had horns uh, in a literal or figurative sense. But certainly Mormons believed that uh, Gentiles believed that Mormons had horns, and there's lots of lore and and jokes and stories about that among Mormons. And so uh, determining whether something is a folklore from the inside or the outside is not always easy. Um, uh, another great example is uh, in our our book. Uh, Jill Rudy talks about uh, humorous songs about uh, about uh, Brigham Young and his, uh, you know, famously unique uh, lifestyle of uh, many many wives and um, a lot of songs would poke poke fun of that. And uh, non Mormons sang them, but one of the things that Jill Rudy points out that there's a lot of evidence that Mormons sang them too, not not disaffected or or uh, inactive Mormons either, but uh, ones very much on on the inside and who had uh, a good chuckle at themselves and their uh, their own peculiarities.
0: so that, that this would be uh, poking fun at themselves kind of a thing
2: Yeah, sure mm-hmm.
0: yeah uh, Professor mold, uh, I wondered your, your take on the same question would, is there um, you know a, a story a uh, folklore strain that stands out to you?
1: Um, I think Eric hit on a couple of great ones. Um, I'm just thinking of a couple of the other articles in the book. Um, one by um, David Knowlton, who takes a look at missionaries in Bolivia and considers how missionaries were viewed by Bolivians who would have encountered them, uh, and and in very oftentimes in very negative ways. Um, again, Jill. Jill Rudy is, was in Guatemala uh, for her mission and considered how food sort of moved back and forth, that for you know the, the local population, food would be perceived as in one way, but for an American Anglo-Mormon missionary viewed in a very sort of different way. Um, but I think the kind of that, that highlighting of the fact that this folklore can, can move across, that, that the as Eric says, the songs or the jokes that would be shared by perhaps non-Mormons in a critical way. Um, we see this again and again in lots of different uh, minority communities can be sort of reappropriate, reclaimed uh, as a way to recognize that people have particular stereotypes, but, um, but to mitigate against the harm that those stereotypes can have. Um, by by using them themselves and making fun of themselves,
0: Professor Lyson, I'm 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 wondering uh, there would be types of folklore, wouldn't there, that that would you'd find in just about any culture or subculture? Uh, uh, are there things that are unique to uh, Mormon folklore?
2: Oh, sure. That, that's a good that's a good question. And um, well, I guess to start with broad, and then narrow down. Of folklore is universal in that every culture has it. We we haven't discovered uh, a group of people even in the remotest Amazon or, or New Guinea who don't tell stories of, of some of some sort. And one of the things we find too is that a lot of times stories will travel between cultures and take on some of the features uh, of of that culture. For example, in the uh, nineteen fifties there throughout the United States there was a, a common um uh urban legend type called the vanishing hitchhiker where a couple would be driving in the car, pick up a hitchhiker, the discussion would turn to, you know, end of times. I, you know this was nineteen fifties and the people were scared of uh uh atomic weapons and things like that and They would turn around to ask the guy how he seemed to be so well well versed in all of these things, but only to find that he disappeared from the back of the car. Now this is all all across the United States, but you only need to add two little details to make this seem like it's uniquely Mormon, and that is that and they thought he was one of the three Nephites, and he said the end is nigh and you need to get your food storage ready, Mm -hmm. and then that makes the whole cast the whole thing as a as a. As a Mormon thing. Now, there are other examples. in I, in the uh, book I wrote previously about Jay Golden Kimball stories, there were some parallels with him and a figure with a, um, a a figure in Turkey and Iran called Nazardin Hoja, who was also a, a a cleric who was known for his humor. But there's almost no stories that overlap. And many of the Jay Golden Kimball stories, are, are unique to Jay Golden Kimball. We haven't found cognates of them uh, in, in anywhere else. So that really is a, a Mormon community creation.
0: We're going to talk much more about this. We're talking about Mormon folklore. The book is Latter-day Lore, Mormon Folklore Studies. It's new out from University of Utah Press. Uh, we're going to be talking about the beehive, creative date invitations, BYU co-ed jokes, folklore of Mormon missionaries, the apocalypse, much more. Want uh, Professor Lysen to talk more about Jay Golden Kimball? It's uh, a famous uh, strain of, uh, you know, a real figure, but uh, but some folklore has uh, built up. Uh, we're talking with Erica Lyason, professor of English at Brigham Young University, and Tom Mould, who's associate professor of anthropology at Elon University. And there's much more to come following a break this week in This American Life.
1: Uh, Hello, uh, a man makes a request that goes against both company
3: policy and human nature. You know the music you have, the holding music, when you put me on hold, it plays it. Could you do that for me for a minute?
4: Loving the music on hold, no kidding. And other stories of being stuck this week. Saturday afternoons at 2 on Utah Public Radio. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering honey crumb granola, cinnamon monkey bread, and vegetarian quiche.
0: It's all there in Latter-day lore, Mormon folklore studies, new out from University Press, the Three Nephites, The Beehive, Creative Data Invitations, BYU co-ed jokes, folklore of Mormon missionaries, the apocalypse, and much more. Latter-day lore explores various aspects of Mormon folklore studies. It's a way to get to know the people uh, as defined by themselves or from the outside. And uh, as we've been uh, talking about, there are some commonalities among uh, many groups, including Mormons, Uh, and I imagine uh, other groups would appropriate these and make them their own as well. We'll get to talking about much more in this subject, Um, and uh, we're talking with the editors, Eric Eliason, Professor of English at Brigham Young University, and Tom Mould, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Elon University. You're welcome to join this conversation. Love it if you would, with your perspective, your comment, your question. Perhaps you have a story, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. You'll see a picture of the cover here of Latter-day Lore. And uh, we have this uh, message via um, uh, Facebook from Dave, and I'll direct this to Professor Mould first. He says, I'd be interested to hear the opinions of these folklorists concerning the historicity of the Book of Mormon. In other words, do they see the uh, Book of Mormon as a historic document or as a fictional document with lessons to teach us? That's uh, David via our uh, Facebook page. Uh, Professor Mould first on this.
1: Sure. So um, one thing that's perhaps useful to, to point out, Eric and I both come from different faith traditions, Um Eric is a member of the church, I'm Christian but not a Mormon, and um, I think that was really useful for how we came at this project, simply bringing our different um, religious traditions and histories and biographies to the table. That said, uh, both of us come at the Book of Mormon, and I hope, I think I can speak for Eric on this, both of us come uh, to the Book of Mormon as a historical document, certainly not as a fictional document. now, me, personally, I haven't asked questions, um, and again, this goes back to that notion of how folklorists approach the idea of truth, to, to ask questions as to whether the Book of Mormon is, um, you know, all the events that are recorded in that book uh, would have happened in a kind of historical sort of way. Um, it's not a set of questions that is particularly compelling to me again what I'm interested in is how people who have these, this faith tradition how they transform theology and doctrine and in this case the Book of Mormon into religious practice custom and tradition
0: professor Lason your, your response to the question
1: yeah sure that's a that's a great question and, it, and it's a it's a live one right
2: now among uh, uh, Mormon scholars but it really does kind of Fall outside of the purview of of what folklorists do as the the Book of Mormon as a a written text either uh, with it's got historicity one way or the other from the 19th century or from the ancient world or some combination of the two. But uh, what interests folklorists mostly is is traditional face-to-face orally passed on material, and this is the this is the distinction between um, uh, folklore and uh, you know, written, co- written culture is its mode of transmission, not whether it's true or not. And so that's why I think, you know, again, all things come back to the 3D the, 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 the sites, mm-hmm. which uh, interestingly I think is much more important for folklorists in their understanding of Mormonism than it is for Mormons in our understanding of Mormonism. As, the, as a oral narrative tradition that has developed out of the Book of Mormon's uh, uh, written narrative.
0: You can also join us on our uh, by email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. So the number is 1-800-826-1495. Hopefully Bettina will uh, call call back. Uh, Professor Mould, uh, I wonder, it's, it's very interesting, uh, and I imagine... Th- through many faith traditions you would have folklore of the apocalypse it's very interesting reading that section of uh, this book latter-day lore I wonder if you could uh, talk a bit about uh, some of the some of that folklore of the apocalypse
1: sure um, and I hope uh, I hope your your question if I interpret correctly suggests that perhaps you know we we can think about this within um, the latter-day lore but also beyond it in the kind of way that the apocalypse is certainly not uh, owned by mormons uh it's talked about by a lot of folks and in fact um i came to this issue from the mississippi band of choctaw indians who have a vibrant tradition of prophecy uh, including, because about 85% of the tribe is Christian, including a lot of prophecies about the second coming, about an apocalypse. Um, what's interesting to me was to take a look at those prophecies, which included um, connections to Choctaw history, um, belief that they had already been many listeners will be familiar with the Trail of Tears that moved American Indians from the southeast. Um, to areas near Oklahoma, etc., um, that, that their Apocalypse tradition would use those as a touchstone and you know, believe in a third removal, so that if there were two removals to Oklahoma, the Apocalypse brings a third. My point in saying all of that is to say that, um, that Mormon Apocalyptic traditions will also take the same base story, right, from the Bible, but then interpret it through their own culture and have stories that are specific to it. And so in some of those apocalyptic narratives, for example, there are beliefs that the, the streets of, of Salt Lake City will be running, will run red with blood, um, and images directly out of Revelations about the moon turning red, and some of these signs, and for Latter-day Saints, the name of the religion itself, of course, suggests that we are living in the latter times. That we should, that Mormons should be saving up food because the end could come at any point. And so, what I saw in comparing those two traditions that was that for many Mormons, um, the apocalypse was a far more um, present concept. Uh, one that was embedded in their daily lives as opposed to a kind of a more theoretical uh, set of issues.
0: Let's go to um, our first caller, who is Bettina in uh, Springdale. Do we have you with us?
5: Hi. Oh,
0: I'm glad we got you uh, yeah. back. So i uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment.
5: Oh, I was just going to uh, mention that a, an authentic story about Jake Olden Kimball was from my father who went into oh, great. the mission home in 19, I think, 32 or 33, and Jay Golden Kimball, his job was to give a talk to the incoming missionaries, and he always tells the story of how Jay Golden Kimball got up in front of him and looked around, and he said, so you little pissants wants to be missionaries. <laughs>
0: yeah. and, and Bettina, you got that from your father, you said?
5: Yeah, yeah. 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 and uh so anyway but um yeah he i think he was the real deal <laughs> and uh, the other question i wondered about beehives and um i know that in the 33rd degree of masonry the symbol is the beehive and um also i always wondered why in a polygamous state the beehive was the symbol when really the queen of the beehive is a female, so it's really a matriarch instead of a patriarchal system. And um, uh, all the little bees are that gather honey are female. And um,
2: the,
1: or male. the queen
5: is actually mm-hmm. polyandry; she meets right.
2: different males. So, That's right, and she, that, she has a, a bevy yeah. of male drones uh, around her. Mm. Interesting yeah. inversion there.
0: Well, Got Yeah, the, yeah, you're you're shedding whole new light on this, Bettina. <laughs>
5: Okay, well, Perhaps we need listening. to throw the beehive
2: out as the symbol. Yeah. Well, Thank, um, thanks, Patina. I
0: appreciate that. Explain that he got the beehive idea
2: for sev- several reasons. It, one is it's uh, well, the name Deseret refers to the honeybee, and uh, which was the what the Mormons called the state, and what the state would have been called had the government not been interested in, in punishing us and not letting us choose our own name out here, and. Um, but uh, he drew that from the Book of Mormon, from the, the Jaredite people, and for, for whatever reason, I'm not exactly sure that that word goes in its is in the original original language. But he liked very much like the idea of a society organized and efficiently um, going about its its work. So it was a uh, a hive of activity, so to speak, and that was the imagery he he was going for. Uh, there may have been some Masonic connections there too, I'm, I'm not sure. Certainly there are some some interesting overlaps there and some interesting drawing on on uh, at least some concepts that have common origins with uh, Masonry that, that the early Mormons were doing in Utah.
0: Let's go to our next uh, comment. This is uh, Steve on our Facebook page. By the way, you can comment on Latter-day Lore. That's the, the book we're talking about, Latter-day Lore, Mormon folklore studies. And we're talking with the editors, Eric Eliasson from BYU and Tom Mould from Elon University. Uh, and the way to, to get to us is 1-800-826-1495. That's how Bettina reached us. You could reach us on our uh, by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Or you could reach us by Facebook, Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Here's what uh, Steve says. How interesting to learn that either some Gentiles believe that Mormons have horns or that some Mormons believe they did. Mormons are not alone in this. Many years ago, when I lived and worked in New York City, I worked with a Brooklyn-based IT firm owned and operated by uh, by Hasidic Jews. One of my clients there told me in all earnestness that on a visit to North Carolina, he had overheard a woman whisper to her child that Hasidim have horns. We'll never know whether my client actually overheard this or simply imagined that he had, but either way, it is another example of the belief, which may or may not be well-founded by members of a a uh, w- uh, well knit smaller group that members of the larger population believe they have horns. I wonder what it is about horns in particular that lend themselves to such invidious be- uh, myths. That's uh, Steve on our Facebook page. Uh, I wonder, uh, uh, Tom, if you'd like to <clears throat> like to comment on that.
1: Yeah, so I think the connection between um, Judaism and horns is is a deep one, um, and I don't know sort of how far back it goes, but that's where I had always heard that that assumption, and that the Mormon connection to horns would be, I think, derivative of that initial assumption that anybody who was not Christian, who was outside the faith, then would be seen, in this case, perhaps as sort of demonic or, right, they're, gonna, they're not going to go to heaven, they're not, they haven't been saved. Um, you know, the image of horns, and we'll have to, I'll, I'll leave it to a historian, a religious historian to, to clarify, but um, goes back, you know, far beyond a kind of a negative connotation to one of positive, of, of a symbol of knowledge. Um, and I think there are a number of statues of Moses, for example, with horns. Um, so whether that's a misinterpretation, a mistranslation from biblical texts, or I'm not sure how that starts, but, but the, it's clearly, um, and I had to laugh when the story placed the, the poor visitor in North Carolina, which of course is where I'm sitting. Um, that interpretation of, uh, of horns in those cases is clearly uh, seen as negative um, connection to someone outside the faith. Um, but I think the key, and, and Eric said it first, and the call or the writer um, mentioned it as well, is I think the key is that so much of those perceptions happen um, within a community, that one powerful story of, you know, they have horns, can carry a lot of weight in how a community sees, views how their reception is going to be outside of it. Can I oh, say
2: a, a, yes, a little more go. about the horns?
1: Yes, go uh, ahead.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd heard that too about uh, Moses, and oftentimes symbols don't mean just one thing, but can can change their meaning uh, over time. And, you know, my, my inner Mormon is welling up a little bit, you know, with the... the, the the Hasidic connection there, and we'll see that just proves that we Mormons are true modern Israel as well, that we're being stereotyped in the same sort of way. Uh, but um, the, another thing, of course, is the imagery of of uh, horns with uh, demons and in the, in the devil, and I'm sure that wasn't lost on, on people. But also another one, I think, particularly with Mormons and people's understandable suspicion that polygamy... Wasn't necessarily practiced just for the religious reasons that we claimed it was, but there might, that uh, somebody being horny has a double meaning, uh, was part of the play in the, and
0: why Mormons had horns, too. Hmm, interesting.
2: There's a
0: possibility. Uh, Landon, uh, do call back. We, we've we diagnosed our... We're having uh, problems with one specific phone line, so we'll put you on our working phone line <laughs> when you call back. So please call back, Landon. Uh, we'd love to get your perspective. The number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. You can also join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page or at Access at gmail.com. Um... I want to follow up a little bit with uh, Professor Lassen. Uh, we had Professor Mould talking a little bit about the folklore of the apocalypse. Professor Lassen, I, I know by reading uh, this section from the book, um, LDS Church leaders uh, have viewed this as a problem, right? Some of some of the folklore, some of the stories surrounding uh, the apocalypse and have even pushed back on some of this.
2: Yes, yeah, that's, that's true, and I can think of, a, of several instances, and, you know, one of the definitions of folklore is that it circulates outside of or alongside of official channels and it's not by its nature antagonistic to to uh, uh, what you know, comes top down from Salt Lake City but so, sometimes it sometimes it can be and uh, certainly the uh, uh, some of the more dramatic Parts of what's been called the the white horse prophecy and and i think the if i remember correctly the Salt lake City streets running with blood and things like that are have on a, on several occasions been been uh, denounced by by the brother and I know Hughie Brown once said fairly vigorously you know to to be careful of of uh of stories that 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 uh uh people, to, uh, people tell that uh, don't have any any um uh, any basis. I, I remember watching President Hinckley uh, in conference mm-hmm. talking about preparedness, and he framed this very carefully. With now, now look, I don't want anybody to overinterpret this. I'm not saying there's going to be seven years of famine, but you know, I want us to think about the story in the Bible about Mo, uh, the Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream about. You know the the seven skinny cows meaning seven years of famine and the seven fat cows meaning seven years of plenty and and again you know, don't don't you know interpret this as a as a prophecy. Sure enough, next day in Sunday school, a guy raises his hand and says, "What well, President Hinckley said in conference, there's going to be seven days of famine." <laughs> so I remember that fairly distinctly as a as it was happening, but I think in, in interesting ways the. the the apocalypse has been a lot closer in the past than it is now. It's not something that the church is emphasizing uh, heavily today, even in, uh, officially. And I get the sense that there's still some interest in it among lay members. But I, I think, uh, I mean, the earliest Mormons in Joseph Smith's day, they, they thought it was just, just around the corner. And mm. I think probably would have been surprised that it's been delayed
1: so long.
0: We do have uh, yes. Go ahead, and then we'll get. I was just going to
1: add that um, while I was doing my field work here in North Carolina, um, and Eric may have heard this as well about the prophecy of Hinckley's army. So he mentioned um, President Gordon B. Hinckley, who um, before Thomas Monson was the president of the church. and that people, who, the young men in particular who lived while Gordon B. Hinckley was president, when they died would be asked um, whether they lived during the time of Gordon B. Hinckley, and they would be sort of viewed as part of Hinckley's army and set apart as special. And that this was a. Um, A story that had made its rounds to such an extent. And people, I mean, some of the young guys I talked to said, I definitely heard this in sacrament meeting, or I definitely heard this in in Sunday school. And um, the church from Salt Lake City sent a formal statement to be read in every ward across, uh, certainly across the country. I I don't know if it was across the world, but uh, that this you know—this has not been founded. This is not revelation from the church, from the president, and please don't share those stories. And, and as, as Eric mentioned, the church has had to a number of times, which is really interesting for a folklorist, sort of step into these um, discussions and these contemporary legends that get shared and make formal pronouncements about them, um, which for some people gives them more weight and then only fuels the fire, but... It's an another back good example
2: of that is the, the story i'm sure many of our listeners have heard of the missionary who gets his mission call and when he opens it up instead of saying where it's supposed to go there's a 1-800 number for him to call and he calls and it's the president of the church who tells him that he has a secret mission that he can't tell anybody about but he's actually going to be going to mainland china and it's going to be for for three years and uh the same story circulated when i was a kid but it was about russia rather than 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 china
1: sure
2: and um and and this is another one that the the a, a chinese religious official when he was on a visit to salt lake city had caught wind of and asked you know president hinckley about so well what is this what's going on what's this secret mission and if you know anything about church policy we're very much go in the front door no no matter how corrupt or wicked or brutal a government is we still get its permission before sending people into those countries and we're getting our clocks cleaned a little bit by Jehovah's Witnesses and seventh-day Adventists because of that but that's the policy and we stick to it very uh, very strongly and, and but you you can imagine that the Chinese, religious officials catching wind of this this story isn't helping our cause at all to get missionaries in into China so that's another one where uh the church you know very specifically said this is not a good thing please don't pass this on which you know I don't want to leave the impression that 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 folklore is inherently dangerous these these kinds of occurrences are relatively rare and I I think for more often we see folklore working in conjunction with and to to help people maintain and build and, and, and keep their faith and loyalty uh, not just within Mormonism but within whatever community that they might might be in it and it shows an internalization of, of the values that the leadership would would have people uh, have people have
0: let's go to our next caller who is Landon in Logan Landon glad you called go ahead with your question or comment
2: Yeah, my question's about kind of what you're talking about now and how the Church has dealt with folklore, either for or against their image. And in particular, I'm curious, uh, my great-great-grandfather was uh, in the Valley at the same time as my best friend's great-great-grandfather, Porter Rockwell. And different accounts of Porter, you hear some accounts state that he was nothing more than a a gunslinger and and a bit of a hooligan. But then you hear other stories that are more uh, church-appropriate that that say that he was uh, a saint and a protector of children and things like that. And I want to hear
0: the guest's opinion on that. Okay, which which one uh, wants to take that?
1: I'm, I'm happy to start, though Eric okay. probably with the folk hero and Jay Golden Tim, Kimball can 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 follow up far better. But just briefly, um, heroes are always going to be uh, viewed dramatically differently according to the the group who's made them into a hero. Um, so within the church, Porter Rockwell, the stories that would be shared, in, at least in more formal settings, are going to highlight those places where I think even, you know, even within the church, he's a gunslinger, right? He's rough, um, he's going to use bad language, he's, he drinks, but he's defending the church. And so it's that, it's that role of defender of the church that's going to be the kind of primary uh, focus for those stories. Outside of that, you can imagine people critiquing Porter Rockwell and saying, this is your folk hero, you know, this is who you hold up, look at all the things he does that run counter to your religion, and use it as a critique. Uh,
0: P- Professor Larson, did you have a comment on that?
1: Sure. Yeah, and that, that's that's built into the definition
2: of a folk hero is that they are specific to specific, of uh, you know folk folk groups. And uh, you know, in the eastern press, you know, folk uh, the Porter Rockwell was a lawless, you know, vigilante and terrible, you know, murderer of apostates and you know, very very well known. And his activities and exploits were were um, uh, uh, you know much much celebrated as an, as infamous uh, however in, in Utah he was seen as a you know a hard-working you know a lawman who did the law you know, uh, did his work according to the, the standards of the time which were you know a little bit different today and helping maintain a society that was actually much more peaceful than elsewhere elsewhere in the West but um, even within groups, you can sometimes have differing views of it. I remember talking about Porter Rockwell to a class once, and afterwards, a student came up to me and says, "You know what? Our, our class, we and our family, we have a little different view of, of Porter Rockwell. And their family oral oral um, folk history was that you know one day, great 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 grandpa was was uh, milking cows, and Porter Rockwell showed up on the property and just walked into the barn, and they hear a gunshot and Porter Rockwell had killed Grandpa and, and uh, came out. And Mama ran out screaming, you, what would you kill him for? And all Porter Rockwell said was he was a horse thief and, and, and ro- rode off. And and my like I said, wow, that's a dramatic story. And I can see why you'd think a little differently of him in your family. But I asked, well, was Grandpa a horse thief? And the student's eyes kind of widened and said, you know what? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe he was.
0: Hmm. Uh, so, yes. Uh, uh, thank you, Landon. Appreciate the, the call. Uh, you can call us. We have about uh, five minutes left in the conversation. You can get a quick call in at 1-800-826-1495, or you can uh, join us on the Utah Public Radio Facebook page or by email to upraccess at gmail.com. The book is Latter-day Lore, Mormon Folklore Studies. And we're talking with the editors, Eric Eliason from BYU, Tom Mould from Elon University. Uh, and uh, here is another comment uh, via our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. This is from Brandt. He says, A very impressive anthology of seminal work in Mormon folklore scholarship. As the church and lay members respond to the digital revolution, they're forced to confront their digital identity and consider new ways of sharing their religious experience in new ways over the Internet. What direction do you feel the study of Mormon folklore can or should take in the 21st century? Wonder what uh, what you gentlemen think of that.
1: That's a that's a great question, and it's one that I think the entire field of folklore uh, confronts—Mormon uh, folklore or not. Um, in a current project that I'm working on right now, where I'm looking at um, contemporary legends about welfare and public assistance, uh, the, the those stories are perhaps nowhere more vibrantly uh, and extensively shared. Than on the internet, whether it's on blogs or in the comment sections after articles, um, so I think the I think uh, Brent's exactly right. This is the internet and electronic media are an area that folklore certainly have, and they've since the, since really the beginning of the internet, we've begun to make those inroads, but. Um, and it's been certainly picking up, but I don't think we can ignore it anymore. In terms of Mormon folklore specifically, um, I think you know, any, any sites that are run by – and there are certainly a number of sites from ex-Mormons who are very happy and willing to share their stories of why they left the church – um, those stories deserve attention, but the stories where faithful members of the church are, are, are going on and sharing perhaps their, their testimonies, um, you know, there's a there's a natural place for that with in sort of um, what we might call sort of more folkloric uh, kinds of contexts. In in other words, during fast and testimony, excuse me, fast and testimony meetings on the first Friday of the month. Um, but the Internet offers so many more opportunities to share those stories, and they get spread, not just face-to-face, which would suggest small communities, but so broadly across the entire globe that we have to rethink how we think about um, you know, folk communities at all.
2: Mm-hmm. Folklorists often like to talk about uh, emergent traditions, particularly American folklorists like this idea that a, a tradition doesn't need to be thousands of years old to really be a tradition, but sometimes you want to catch it at the moment where it's first starting. And with missionaries recently being allowed to post on Facebook, this has caused an explosion of, of missionaries posting things on Facebook. How are they doing it? Are they sending out sort of broad epistles to everybody? Are they targeting their focus to certain, certain people? What are the themes that the missionaries bring up uh, these would be great texts to for a folklorist at some point to to to, to analyze.
0: We just have about a minute left. Uh, I wonder um, what, what what is next um, in terms of is folklore in, in general, not just Mormon folklore. Is it going to be migrating to the internet? I
1: think it already has. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so that. Yeah.
0: Um, And so we'll be looking for for much more. And in the meantime, uh, very interesting book. And there's much more we could talk about. We didn't even get to into the BYU coed jokes and the creative date invitations. Uh, That's a very interesting Utah and Mormon thing. Uh, You'll have to read the book. Uh, Latter Day Lore, Mormon Folklore Studies is the book. And the editors are Eric Eliasson from Brigham Young University and Tom Mould from Elon University. Gentlemen, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. It's been
0: great. And thanks to our uh, callers and uh, emailers and uh, Facebook responders. Appreciate your response to the program as well. Coming up tomorrow, we uh, have a rescheduled program. We had some uh, phone troubles uh, last month. And so we're going to talk with Iranian-American writer Human Majd. Uh, several years ago, with U.S.-Iran relations at a 30-year low, he decided to take his blonde, blue-eyed Midwestern wife, Carrie, and his infant son, Kash, from their Brooklyn neighborhood to spend a year in the land of his birth. And the result of that year-long stay, is a very interesting uh, peek behind the curtains, as it were, in modern-day Iran. The book is called The Ministry of Guidance Invites You to Not Stay. And, of course, there's a lot going on with the Iranian-U.S. relations right now. A very timely book, Human Majd, will join us, and that's tomorrow on the program. Uh, coming up right now, we have a new commentator, and I uh, hope you're enjoying the uh, commentaries at the end of Access Utah and during All Things Considered in Morning Edition. Richard Ratliff is his name. He's a principal member of the Relationage it's a company primarily sp- responsible for research and consultations uh, on management of uh, by relationship. You can learn much more about that at therelationage.com. And uh, Richard Ratliff is Professor Emeritus and retired Arthur Anderson Professor of Accounting from Utah State University. He was author and co-author of a variety of journal articles and two textbooks on internal auditing. Dr. Ratliff received his Bachelor of Arts degree from Texas Christian University, Master of Arts from the University of Texas at Austin, Doctor of Philosophy degree from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And as I mentioned, he's a principal with the Relationage. Uh, he'll be giving us uh, commentaries, and here is his first commentary.
3: In one word... What do you want in life? What does anybody want in life? I'm going to make an assumption here. I'm guessing that if you were to get all of your one-word answers and boil them down to one comprehensive word, that word probably is going to be happiness. We all want to be happy. One of the great purposes of life is the pursuit of happiness. The question is, how do we do that? How does a person find happiness? How does a family, organization, or society achieve happiness. I've known some happy people in my life. I've had great moments of happiness myself. Some people are happy most of the time, but I doubt that anyone is perfectly happy all the time. Most of us, I believe, are happy or unhappy in layers. Who was it that said a person is like an onion in layers? Some of us at our core are happy and content with life, but a little closer to the surface, we may worry about loved ones or our jobs or the national debt. Still further up toward the surface, we may be downright livid about the ball game last night, but right now there simply is nothing better in life than hearing the sweet words, I love you, as we walk out the door. That makes me happy. So, are we happy or unhappy? My guess is that the answer is in the relationships. Someone else may be deeply troubled at the core because of self-doubt. Content with his employment, ecstatic with his favorite team's recent victory, and distraught because of an argument he had with his wife this morning. So is he happy or unhappy? Again, my guess is that the answer is in the relationships. I have a 13-year-old granddaughter who is happy. Everyone notices it. She has a perpetual smile on her face. She loves everybody, and everybody loves her. Does she have disappointments? Sure. The basketball team she plays on lost a game the other night, 37-7. to The game before that, they lost something like 53-6. to After the second game, I asked her how she felt. She said, well, at least we're improving, and it was fun. Still smiling, her happiness doesn't depend upon winning or losing or prestige or even wealth. The smile on her face is a reflection of the warmth of her relationships with everyone she knows. There is a man whom I very much admire. He recently experienced a disappointment with one of his projects at work. His response? He said, It's disappointing, but you know, Richard, the sun will come up tomorrow, and we'll go on. Life is good. More people call this man friend than anyone I know. I've come to recognize a common element increases the happiness in my own life and in the lives of others. My own happy moments usually occur in the context of relationships. Happy people I know have good relationships. Successful organizations, that is organizations with happy customers, employees, suppliers, and investors, enjoy good relationships with all these groups. Safe, prosperous communities tend to have thriving networks of good relationships. Implications of this basic idea of the importance of good relationships to personal happiness, organizational success, and social viability are profound. The implications go beyond just being courteous to other people, although that's important. Implications go beyond civility, although that's important too. Important implications extend to the economic and political theory and practice and to international relations and diplomacy. Economists teach us that good relationships are more beneficial and less expensive to everyone involved at every level of consideration. Good relationships promote happiness, prosperity, and security. My question is this. If it is true that good relationships make us happy and bad relationships make us unhappy, and if good relationships are economically superior to bad relationships, why would we intentionally do things that would cause bad relationships? We do, you know. So do our political representatives and too many of us in our public, vocational, and professional lives, and even in our homes. I propose that when we do, It's because we forget that happiness doesn't necessarily come from winning, wealth, or prestige. Consider the relationships. This is Richard Ratliff. Thanks for listening.
0: Richard Ratliff is a principal at The Relation Edge. You can find more information at therelationedge.com. It's located in Logan, Utah. He's our new commentator. You'll hear him on Periodic Tuesdays. For producers, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening to Access Utah Today.
4: And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering daily soups, including Clam Chowder Friday on the last Friday of the month.
0: Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah Anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan. KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1
2: 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab,
0: and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.